I'm so glad to be with you this morning. Uh, if you have your Bible on your phone or with you this morning, uh, go ahead and open up to James chapter 5. We're going to look at the last two verses, which Alan just read. Um, I, this is probably not a surprise to many of you, but I have a bit of a sweet tooth. In fact, I've always had a bit of a sweet tooth, okay? Um, anyone else? Anyone else have a sweet tooth? Okay. I am not alone. This is good news, okay? Um, what this means for me is I find it incredibly difficult to pass up dessert after dinner, okay? And you do the same thing too. I know you do. I've been at some of your homes. I've been out to eat with some of you. And, and you, the way it usually goes is you say at the end of the, the dinner, oh man, I'm so stuffed. Dinner was so good. I'm so full, right? And then you look around all comfortable and Un, you know, just like full and everything. You look around at everyone at the, the table and say, you guys want to order desserts, right? You, you do this. I know you do this, okay? I am not alone. Um, a while back, Laurel and I were out in Yale Town with some of our friends, and we were out for dinner, and we were at this restaurant where they have Greek food, and it's like amazing food. We ordered appetizers and mains, and like we just like ate through the menu, okay? So it was one of those evenings, and at the end, I looked at everyone all full and stuffed like I normally am. And I said, we need to go get donuts. We do. And they're like, okay, okay. And they're like, guys, I have a problem, okay? And um, the thing is, it was a bit late, okay? We were there for quite a while. And so we go down through the list of donut options in Vancouver, okay? Cardam's closed. 49th, also closed. Lee's Donuts, absolutely closed. It's been closed for hours, right? What are we thinking? And then somebody said the words, Let's go to Duffins, okay? And um, if, if you've never been to Duffins, it is a place in Vancouver where you can get everything from donuts to fried chicken. They've got noodle soup, uh, Chinese food, and yes, even hot dogs, okay? They're open 24 hours a day. And um, <laughs> let's just say it's a place with a bit of character. It's got a bit of texture, okay? And uh, it, it also has a bit of a, a fan following or maybe a cult fan following. And so we thought, okay, there's a lot of hype around Duffins. We have passed by it a million times on Night Street. Let's go check it out, okay? It's late at night. We go to Duffins. We, we, we pull up. We walk in. I felt like I just walked into a zombie, zombie apocalypse, okay? And this was like the last place open. There's people there. It's late at night. They're just walking up to the counter, ordering all kinds of different food. And um, I thought, okay, we're here. We're on a mission. Let's just order four glazed donuts and get out of here, okay? So we do. And um, none of us, I mean, none of us finished our donuts, but we did die laughing all of the way home because it was a really incredible experience, okay? But what we did do was at the end of it, we committed to one another, no matter what the circumstances, no matter how strong the cravings for sugar were, we would never, and I mean, never go back, okay? Now, what do you do when people feel this way toward the church? Or towards Jesus. I used to follow Jesus, but I am never going back. I used to be a Christian, but there's no way that I could believe those things anymore. What do you do when people have a negative experience with church or Christianity and are turned off from following Jesus? What do we do when people turn away? Again, James writes, my brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone bring that person back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Now, for a lot of us, this isn't a distant reality. This isn't something that is far and removed for us. 
You know, we all know people who ha have at one point known and loved Jesus. Maybe they grew up in the church, but at some point they walked away. Maybe it was a family member or a close friend, and they have given up on Jesus altogether. Or maybe it was a slow, distant, fading away of their faith. Um, I remember in grade six, my friend Kyle went with me to summer camp, okay? It was a Christian Bible camp, but we were just there for the water sports, you know, the girls, the fun times, the, you know, the candy bars at, at Tuckett, all that stuff. And um, I remember we were having a great time until one night our cabin leader kept us up really, really late. And he was telling us and describing in vivid detail what it would be like if we didn't put our faith in Jesus and this hypothetical rapture were to take place, what would happen if we were left behind? And, and Kyle was there by our bunk bed shaking and, and, and convulsing and, and crying out to God to please have mercy on him and not leave him behind. Now, it took Kyle less than a week to give up on that spontaneous commitment to Jesus, and I doubt as, if he's ever thought much of it since then. Um, I also remember taking my faith more seriously in high school. And at the time, my friend Ben was passionate about following Jesus. He was on fire. His, his life was being turned upside down by Jesus. Ben went on to become a youth pastor and really to live radically for Jesus for quite some time. But today, Ben is no longer a Christian. At some point, he hit a wall and gave up on Jesus. At around the same time, um, I would do this thing in my high school where I was starting to take my faith more seriously. So I'd find myself in situations where I'd be talking to another high schooler and we'd do this thing where we'd realize and we'd click and we'd be like, oh, you're a Christian. And we would say, we would look at each other like, you're a Christian too. And then we would do our best to keep it on the DL because we didn't want anyone in our high school to know, right? One of the people that I had this experience with was a guy named Matt. Matt was older than, a little bit older than me, and he took his faith more seriously than me. He knew more about the Bible. He was involved in his church. And really, I looked up to him because I wanted to grow in my faith like Matt. Today, Matt is not a Christian because when he went to college, he thought he had to choose between his sexuality and following Jesus, so he walked away. Now, since then, these stories have just become more regular and, and common. And I'm sure I'm not alone. I'm sure many of you can relate to some of these stories that I'm sharing with you. And these are people that we care deeply about. And we want to see follow Jesus, but they walk away. Statistics show that about 64% of young adults between the ages of 18 and 30 will walk away from Christianity at some point in their 20s. 64%. In May of 2021, Pew Research found that on average, almost 10,000 people a day deconvert from Christianity in America alone. 10,000 people. This is not an uncommon experience. And many of us know and love people who've walked away from Jesus. For the first time in over a century, the average church attendance has dropped below 50%. And despite all of the church's best efforts, to make Christianity hip and relevant and have an incredible production value. I believe we are simply managing the decline of the Western church. But at the same time, as a pastor, I get it. Following Jesus isn't easy. Jesus even said that following him would cost us everything. And I get how weird the Bible is. I talk about this regularly. The Bible is weird. Let's be honest, okay? We will do ourselves a favor if we just admit that, right? Andrew Siddell once said that the road to atheism is littered with Bibles that have been read cover to cover. Or Penn Juliet once said that reading the Bible is a fast track to atheism. Like, have you guys read page one? You're telling me that a talking snake convinced two naked adults that, that they, they should, like, 
disregard God and that's how the world fell apart. Or you're telling me that eating a a fruit from a mythical tree is what caused all of the world to fall into chaos. Or don't you think that it's ironic that Christians are are angered or even outraged that in Matthew chapter 1, Herod kills all the firstborns. But God does the same thing in the book of Exodus, and it doesn't bother us. Like, why do we see that as something that God can do, but not Herod? Speaking of Exodus, have you guys ever read Exodus chapter 21? It says, anyone who, quote, beats their male or female slave with a rod must be punished if the slave dies as a direct result. But they are not to be punished if the slave recovers after a day or two, since the slave is their property. It looks like the Bible supports slavery. Like, why wasn't I told that in Sunday school? Why didn't my Sunday school teacher or Awana leader tell me this? See, what if it turns out that the God I learned about in Sunday school is actually a monster? What if, like Dallas Green, you grew up and wondered if the Bible was wrong? Like, how, how in the world do we teach kids about Noah's Ark when it's literally a story about God killing every animal and child and person in the world? Do Christians really believe this? And maybe you're thinking, Dan, don't worry, that's Old Testament stuff. God took out all of his anger on Jesus. Now he's chill, right? Well, what about God killing Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5? Or what about when Paul writes to the church in Corinth and says that some of you are sick and dying because you did communion wrong? Have you guys read the book of Revelation? Jesus comes back covered in blood. See, Josh Porter points out that the Bible is filled with poems about sex, poems about murder, God making bets with Satan, and a guy who lived inside a sea creature for three days. The Bible is strange. Are we seriously to believe that the resurrection of a first century Jewish peasant preacher fixes all of this complexity? Now, if you're wondering, how do we square all this as disciples of Jesus? Are there good answers for all of these questions? The answer is Yes, you can breathe, okay? There are good and and thoughtful answers to all of these questions. And I'm on vacation for the next two weeks. So Ben would be happy to answer all of those questions for you, okay? Ben at porkhousechurch.com. Send him your questions. He'd be happy to answer them. I say all of this to, to point out that I get why people doubt. The Bible at first glance seems challenging and weird and strange. And it should because it was written thousands of years ago in different cultures and times and places. But the Bible is God's word to us. It's beautiful and and mysterious and compelling and and enrapturing. But I get why people throw in the towel and walk away. Doubt is part of the human experience. Doubt is natural. It's even at times necessary. One of my favorite authors and theologians, Eugene Peterson, once wrote these words. The reason many of us do not inherently believe in the gospel is that we've never given it rigorous testing, thrown our hard questions at it, and faced it with our most prickly doubts. See, in order to come to a place of depth and to come to a place of wholehearted belief, our beliefs and ideas must be tested and we must face our honest questions head on. Doubt, in other words, can be the very thing that strengthens our faith. And this is where James ends this morning. See, there is a way to come out on the other side of doubt stronger than before. But doubt is not something to be avoided. Many of us have learned from a young age growing up in Christianity that doubt is something to be avoided like the plague. There is certainty and there is doubt and faith is on the side of certainty. What if this isn't the reality? See, we will all face doubt. And Thomas only saw Jesus for who he truly is 
on the other side of his doubt. In other words, it was only after he went through doubt and wrestled with it that he could look Jesus in the face and say the words, my Lord and my God. It was doubt that led Thomas to an encounter with the risen Jesus. As someone said, once said, those who believe that they believe in God, but without any passion in their heart, without anguish of mind, without uncertainty, without doubt, and any element of despair, believe only in the idea of God and not in God himself. See, there's something profoundly true about wrestling with our doubts and uncertainties and coming out on the other side with a stronger and robust truth. We can actually go through the process of doubt and come out with more fidelity to the way of Jesus. In other words, what if our doubts are the very thing that God uses to strengthen our faith rather than weaken our faith? George MacDonald, who influenced um, C.S. Lewis and Tolkien and many others, wrote that doubts are the messengers of the living one to the honest. So not everyone makes it through, though, to the other side of doubt. Some lose their faith in the process. Others lose their faith because of the attractiveness of sin. See, they get captivated by, by other things than what truly matters most, which is God himself. And I've seen this play out a thousand times. A person comes to faith in Jesus, they're on fire, but they never really deal with the sin in their lives. And it seems small and manageable at first. They're learning about Jesus, they're getting involved, they're passionate, and it doesn't seem like a big deal. It's just one joint with friends. It's just going a little too far with a boyfriend or girlfriend. It's just soft porn. And what seems small and manageable at first ends up derailing their faith in the end. See, it's no secret to anyone that as we give into sin over and over, neural pathways become stronger and stronger in our brain until we have little to no power over temptation. Scientists call this neuroplasticity. The Bible calls it giving the devil a foothold. Now, whatever you call it, the idea is that your desires and passions and choices become formed by the things that we do. So that when we choose sin over and over and repeatedly, choosing to be victorious over temptation becomes almost impossible. Now, when Ben and I were young adults pastors in the local area, this happened all the time, okay? So we could probably predict what would happen once a young adult got a job at Cactus Club, okay? We would see them less frequently. They would start like rolling with a different crowd, going to different parties, doing different things. All of a sudden, they're crossing lines they never thought they would cross. And six months later, we wouldn't see them. At which point they would be wondering, is Jesus and the Bible even relevant to my life? Now, I'm not saying that getting a job at Cactus Club is bad or is the thing that causes people to give up on Jesus. Feel free to go there after the service. There's nothing wrong with it. What I am saying is that the things of this world have more power than we think to turn our hearts away from Jesus. That sin that seems manageable and small now may very well be the thing that derails your faith in the future. See, Jesus and the author of Hebrews both talk about this in, in Matthew 13 and Hebrews 13, and they call it the deceitfulness of sin. See, it may not seem like a big deal, but every time we give into sin, we grieve the Holy Spirit and we lose sensitivity to his presence. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 4 and says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, whom you were sealed until the day of redemption. The Holy Spirit is a person and he can be grieved. See, there's things that we can do in our lives that put distance in our relationship with God. There are things that we can do that grieve the very heart of the Holy Spirit. 
And if we continue in them, Paul writes to us, we will eventually get to a place where we lose sensitivity. Ephesians 4.19 says, having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. They have given themselves over because they have lost sensitivity. It's like later today when you take like a four-hour nap and you wake up, right? Not that you guys do this. I do this, but I'm, I'm sure that you guys are, you know, don't need naps. But you're going to wake up from your nap, okay? And uh, you're going to wake up and you're like, dear God, my arm, my arm. I can't feel my arm, right? And you're like, I'm having a stroke. This is not good, right? You just need a cup of coffee and to relax for a little bit. Your, your arm has just lost sensitivity, okay? Some of us have lost sensitivity, meaning we have resisted and grieved the Holy Spirit so frequently and so often that we can't feel the Holy Spirit. It's what Paul writes to Timothy and says that these false teachers have seared their conscience. We have resisted the Holy Spirit so frequent and so often that we can't hear his voice. We're not convicted by sin anymore. You can't remember the last time that God spoke to you and you've lost sensitivity. And the scary thing is that this doesn't bother you. You've become apathetic. You're not even aware that you've been resisting the Holy Spirit. It's become so normal to many of us that we have lost sensitivity to the Holy Spirit. And maybe you're here this morning and you think, that's me. That's where I'm at. I've lost sensitivity. Listen to me. Sin will derail your life no matter how small and manageable it might seem. That's what the authors of Scripture mean when they say the wages of sin is death. What it means is sin always comes back knocking on your door and says, pay up. And the price is death. Uh, last Friday, Laurel and I and some friends went down to um, Seattle for the day. And um, we had a really fun time in Seattle. And on our way home, we had to drop off our friends at the bus stop, okay, in Surrey. And uh, we dropped them off because they're going to Cuba, okay? And I'm like, I'm super jealous. I want to go to Cuba. Anyways, we dropped them off at the bus station because they've got to catch their flight, but before we do, they're like, let's take a group photo. I'm like, okay, let's take a group photo. And so we, we prop their phone on my car and we all stand there smiling into the camera. And as we're doing this, the bus pulls up, picks up a few people and drives away, okay? And I'm like, was that your bus? And they're like, yep, that was our bus. Okay, here's the good news. They had one more bus to catch, so they weren't without hope. But if we just stood there taking photos, it would have been too late. This is what the author of Hebrews means when he writes, See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you have a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. In other words, we can become hardened because we've had a moment, but that moment has passed. It's gone. We have missed it. And we have become hardened because we've allowed ourselves to be duped by the deceitfulness of sin. Now, I say all of this with a lot of tenderness and compassion to those of us who are struggling with doubt and sin. See, I get that sin and doubt can draw us away from following Jesus. But what about this community? What about this community of people that James is writing to? Why are they walking away? Now, we have to assume that these are people that were there when Jesus was around. This is probably the, the earliest letter we have in the New Testament. And so we have to assume that some of these people knew Jesus. They were there when he did the miracles. They heard his teaching, and they remember how everything changed when Jesus looked directly at them and knew their name. They became passionate followers of Jesus. They remember how incredible it was to see him 
preach sermons and do miracles and, and live his life. And then their worst fears come true. Jesus was executed as a rebel by the hands of the Romans. He died. But then the unthinkable happened. Jesus came back from the dead. And at first, they didn't believe it either. At first, they thought it was crazy too. But then they saw him with their own eyes and they touched him with their own hands. They were there. They knew. Is what John writes in 1 John, uh, the first few verses where he says, we have seen him with our own eyes and touched him with our own hands. But it's been years since then. Days have gone by, years in fact, and things have gotten difficult. They've drifted away from the Jesus that they knew back then. Their passion has dwindled and, and faded. In fact, some of their close friends have probably walked away and gone back to their old lifestyles, and now they're tempted to give in and throw in the towel too. They're tempted as well to walk away and call it quits. And they're probably tempted for many different reasons that James has touched on. Maybe it's like in James chapter 1 where some of them are going through trials and temptations. Or maybe others can't seem to square how, how some people who claim to follow Jesus are hypocritical and they don't live out their faith like we read in James chapter 3. But probably the most devastating is the hypocritical faith of others, people who are hurtful with their own words and lips, people who are taking advantage of the poor. Maybe others have seen prayers that they cried out to God remain unanswered. But whatever their reason is for walking away, they're tempted. And so call it deconversion, deconstruction, apostasy, or any number of things, but these are people who loved and followed Jesus, and they're walking away. They may even have sacrificed a great deal to follow Jesus, but something along the way has caused them to give up and walk away. And James writes, my brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth, someone should bring that person back. So here's the question for us this morning. How do we bring these people back? This is the imperative for us this morning. How do we bring them back? How do we faithfully, in other words, go after those who have wandered from the truth? I want to offer you four suggestions um, for bringing those back who've drifted away, wandered away, those prodigals that you care deeply about. Some of them may, may even be your own children. Number one, if we want to bring uh, those who have wandered from the truth back, we must lead with love. Jesus says, quote, my disciples will be known by their love. He says in John 13, by this will, you, will they know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. See, Jesus rarely started a relationship with law. He almost always began a relationship with love, especially to those who were despised by the religious elite. See, Jesus was often accused of hanging out with tax collectors, prostitutes, and sinners. In fact, those groups of people enjoyed being around Jesus because he led with love. See, Jesus invited the unspiritual to follow him. He invites this guy by the name of Matthew to become one of his followers. Matthew was a tax collector, okay? And tax collectors today, they're not like, like, the CRA or something like that in our modern idea. See, what was happening is the Jewish people were occupied by Rome. They were taken captive. Their land was occupied by them. And what would happen is a Jewish people would make a deal with the Roman Empire and say, I'll take my own, uh, I'll, t I'll take a cut and I'll tax my own people. These were Jewish sellouts to the Roman Empire. They were thieves and they were often accused of living immoral lives. Matthew is one of these guys. And what would we expect Jesus to do when he meets one of these people. We'd expect him to lead with the law because he's a Jewish Bible teacher, but he doesn't. He says in Matthew 9, it says in Matthew 9, 9, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew 
sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. See, Jesus starts with relationship. He doesn't start with law. He doesn't start with telling Matthew everything that he's doing wrong. He starts with relationship. Follow me. Now, he invites Matthew to come along and follow him with everyone else. And Matthew continues. The next verse says, While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher or rabbi eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. See, Jesus led with love. He led by starting a relationship with Matthew. And at some point, we have to assume that he probably had a conversation with Matthew about tax collecting. He probably had a conversation about his lifestyle, about how following him would mean leaving his old way of life behind. But that's not where he started. He started with love. Now, I say that to say this. If we're going to bring those who have wandered from the truth back, we need to start with love. This doesn't mean that we don't have the difficult conversation, but it means that we treat them like a person and not a project. It means that we care about them, their dignity, their humanity, and we, we start a relationship with them. So we lead with love. But number two, if we want to bring people back, we must be merciful to those who doubt. Jude, who is James and Jesus's brother, writes this, be merciful to those who who doubt. Now, Jude understands firsthand what it would have been like to doubt his older brother, Jesus. He too was a skeptic. He knows what it's like not to believe. And we know this because in Mark chapter 3, it says that when his family heard about all this, they went to take charge of him for they said, he is out of his mind. Okay. Translation, Jesus has gone bananas. Okay. Jesus' family thought that he was out of his mind. They thought he went loopy. They loved him. They, they, they really cared about him, but things have gotten out of hand. Things have gotten too far. Now people are actually thinking that Jesus is God in a bod, and they're like, that's the line. You've crossed it, Jesus, right? And so it says that they took offense at him and didn't believe in him. See, there's no way that Jude is believing this. James and Jude know Jesus. It's their older brother. They picked on him their whole lives, right? And there's no way they're believing that their older brother is God in the flesh. Jude gets why it's easy to doubt. Jude understands how hard it is to have faith that Jesus came back from the dead, but he did. He saw it with his own eyes. So he writes, be merciful to those who doubt. And unlike Jude, what we often do is we beat people over the head and we make them feel stupid or small. We say things like, "Um, just have faith, doubt your doubts, right? God is in control. And we try to shove this stuff down people's throats, but this isn't helpful. We need to start by showing people compassion and understanding that it's normal to doubt and struggle to follow Jesus. So if we want to bring people back who have wandered from the truth, we need to, number one, lead with love. And number two, be merciful to those who doubt. But number three, we must become resilient disciples. One of the most effective things we can do to restore others is to be resilient disciples of Jesus in our own lives. The most effective witness that we can have is the way that we follow Jesus ourselves. See, so many people walk away from Jesus because following Jesus to those they looked up to was just talk. It was just something we did on Sunday morning. It was just something that happened in a 10-minute quiet time, but it had little bearing on their actual day-to-day lives. 
See, statistics reveal that 94% of Christians become Christians before they turn 18. 94%. The vast majority of Christians will become Christians as children. So there's a lot of weight on parents, but 64% of them will walk away by the time they turn 30. 64%. David Kinneman, who um, researches uh, different stats and stuff with Barna Research Group, after years of research said that, quote, on average, only 10 to 11% of our children will become resilient disciples. That's heavy. That's really hard to, to swallow. Only 10 to 11% of our children will become passionate followers of Jesus as adults. See, what if the way we follow Jesus actually um, allowed our kids to experience our faith, right? This is why we're launching uh, groups in the fall. If you, if you, if you want to check out more, um, on September 21st here at the church, 7 p.m., we're going to be doing community basics. But what we want to do is we want to form communities that actually include children. So if you're a parent here and you're thinking, man, is commu- are communities for me? Uh, you don't have to wait until you, like your kids are 18 and you're, they're finally out of your house to follow Jesus in community. You can do that now. Or we're actually going to form our communities around this. We're going to make changes and shifts so that uh, family life can become community life. But I think one of the most devastating things that we can possibly do that's detrimental to the faith of the next generation is say, I'm just going to wait until my kids are older. Your kids need to see the way you follow Jesus now. See, what if following Jesus in community is one of the ways that we restore others? This is what the author of Hebrews says. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. See, the antidote, according to the author of Hebrews, to a sinful or unbelieving heart is encouragement and community. In Acts 2, we read about a a community like this, and it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship and the breaking of bread and prayer. Everyone was filled at awe by the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Notice the words, enjoying the favor of all the people. This is describing the fact that these people followed Jesus in such a way that outsiders wanted to follow Jesus. They did community strategically and rhythmically in such a way that other people became followers of Jesus. See, this only happens if we're following Jesus in a way of life together as a community. See, what if the way we follow Jesus caused people to come across our community and rethink everything they thought about Christianity? What if the way that we follow Jesus together made people wonder if God is better than they ever realized, that God is more compelling and beautiful than they ever imagined. So if we're going to bring people back, we've got to lead with love. We've got to be merciful to those who doubt. And number three, we've got to be resilient disciples. And last, we've got to labor in prayer. If we're going to restore others, we need to labor in prayer. If we're going to see prodigals come home, then we need a move of God. We need a miracle. Nothing less than move of God will be sufficient to bring them home. We need to be persistent in prayer and not give up because God hasn't given up on them and we shouldn't either. See, when we labor in prayer, I believe we connect our hearts with the heart of the Father. So let me end this way. In Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells a story about a good father. And this good father has two sons. 
and he's a father who loves his sons, and he does everything to raise them well. He showers them with love and adoration and affection, and he raises them right, and he teaches them what they need to know, and he is there for them when they need him. But one day, one of his, his sons, his, older, his younger son, comes to him and asks for his inheritance. Now, this isn't like asking for an advance on a check, okay? This is like going to your father and saying, Father, I wish you were dead. Now give me my inheritance. You only got your inheritance when your father passed away. And so here is his son saying, Father, pay up. I don't care that you're alive. I just want my inheritance. Well, because he is a good father, he gives his son what he asks for. This is his last resort way of showing his son how much he loves him because he's a good father. And we think that this son would be moved by his father's generosity and be filled with gratitude for the way that he's always loved him and been there for him. But instead, this son takes his inheritance and moves to a faraway country and he wastes it on wild living. And in a far off land, he parties, he lives it up, and he has a good time. And after years of this, he finds himself on the down and out. He's in a faraway land, he's living with pigs, he's got nothing left to his name, all of his friends are gone, and his bank account is drained. And so the Bible tells us that he came to his senses. What this means is that he remembers how good that his father truly was. He remembers how much his father loved him. He remembered how good he had it when he was in the father's house. So he thought to himself, I'll go back to my father. I'll put together a speech and maybe my father will take me back as a servant because I'm no longer to be called his son. So he packs his bags and the possessions that he has left and he goes on a long, long journey toward home. And on his way, he goes over his speech over and over. He says, Father, I've sinned against you and broken your heart. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Would you take me back to be your servant? See, what the son thinks he knows is that his family will never take him back. He has disgraced them and brought dishonor on his family name. He has forsaken his father in his old age, but maybe, just maybe, his father will take him back as a slave. So while he's walking back, going over his speech, Father, I've sinned against you and broken your heart. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Would you take me back as a servant? As he's going over this, his father is sitting on the porch as he usually does. How long did he keep that up? How many years did he sit there with the, the light on? How many years did he sit there longing, just looking off into the distance for his son to finally come home? And there this good father has not given up on his son. He has not given up on his boy. And just over the horizon, he sees him. It's his youngest son. It's his boy. And the father sees him from a long way off. And the Bible says that he dishonors himself. He takes up his robe and he ties it around his upper knees. He starts running off to the horizon towards his boy. He would look like a fool in his day, but he doesn't care. He doesn't care what he looks like. He doesn't care about anything. He just cares about the one thing in this world. And that's his boy. Because he's a good father. And he's got a good heart filled with love. And he goes running after his boy. And he finally comes to him. After all of these years, after all of the heartbreak and rejection and betrayal, after all of it, what does he do? We think he should banish his son. We think he should reject his son. But the father, because he is a good father, full of love, wraps around his son, embraces him, cries, and kisses him. This is the heart of the father. And the father throws a party. He calls to his servant and says, servant put a ring on his finger and a robe on his shoulders kill the fattened calf because my boy was lost and now he's home and we're going to celebrate the father parties now the son doesn't deserve this he's run off and wasted one third of the father's money he's gone off and wasted and rejected his father 
But the father can't reject him. The father can't turn his back on his son because of his heart. He's a good father and his heart is filled with only love. The only response of the father is embrace. The father reveals his heart by the way that he welcomes his son home. We see the heart of the father in this story. So here's the question. Is this the father you know? Is this the God you worship? A God who welcomes you home with a, with a loving embrace in your darkest moment. A God who throws a party because he's filled with love for you. But I think like the son, we write our speech. Father, I've sinned against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Just take me back as a servant. Or maybe your speech goes like this. Father, I've doubted you and your goodness and your character. I'm no longer worthy to be called a servant. I've broken your heart. Just take me back as a mere slave. And the heart of the father toward you is love and welcome and embrace. This is the heart of the gospel. At the very heart of the good news is a father of love. And his heart towards prodigals is welcome. He is sitting there waiting for them. He is sitting, looking off into the distance for them finally to come back home. He is sitting there with the lights on because he is filled with love for them. Henry Nouwen, in his book, The Return of the Prodigal Son, writes these words. The return to the father is ultimately the challenge to become the father. What he means is that when the father welcomes his son home, he shows both of his boys how to become fathers themselves. Because when you experience the welcome embrace of the father, when you experience at the very core of his being, his generous, self-giving, loving heart, you become like him. You become like the father and like the father, we in turn welcome prodigals home because we know what it's like to be in the far off land. We know what it's like to be outside of the father's embrace in a distant land where the father is longing for us to come home. But we also know what it's like to be welcomed home by a good and generous father. And so the, the challenge for us is to become like the father and welcome prodigals home. See, James knows the father. James knows what he's like because he spent 33 years with him in flesh. He has felt the heart of the father. He has felt the beat of his heart as he saw his, his brother hanging there, pouring out his love. What he saw wasn't just Jesus. It wasn't just the son, but it was the father and the spirit pouring out love so that prodigals could be welcomed home. The question for us this morning is, will we join the father in welcoming prodigals home? And James knows this better than anyone. And he writes, at the end of his letter, he concludes with this commission. My brothers and sisters, sons and daughters of the good father, if one of you should wander from the truth, you should bring that person back. And remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of the way will save them from death and cover a multitude of sins.